0: Hi, Church. How you guys doing? Good. Uh, kids, you are welcome to head off to your classes. Uh, today, you are learning about uh, God showing up to Abraham and Sarah and uh, letting them know they're going to have a kid um, when she's ninety and he's ninety-nine. Good times. <laughs> The Bible is difficult sometimes. There are passages you see coming up and you just dread. Uh, With that, go ahead and open up to Jeremiah chapter 46. (laughs) Yeah, see what I did there? (laughs) Jeremiah chapter 46. So most Bibles have uh, headings, titles, titles. Uh, in them which are not God's Word, uh, but are intended to be summaries of the content below there to help you find what you're looking for, or remind you of what that section is about while you're reading. So now that you're open to Jeremiah 46, look at the titles that we have coming up for today. Judgment on Egypt. Judgment on the Philistines. Judgment on Moab. Judgment on Ammon. Judgment on Edom. Judgment on Damascus. Judgment on Kadar and Hazor. Judgment on Elam. Judgment on Babylon. And the longest chapter in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 51, the utter destruction of Babylon. Uh, in the, if you have an ESV, a New King James, or an NRSV, you would have seen that title, those titles. If you have an NIV or an NLT, you would have seen a message about Egypt, a message about the Philistines, if you have an NASB prophecy against. Now, who's excited, huh? <laughs> uh, often when I come up to a passage like this, I'm not very excited. I drudge through it, praying for something to grab onto. So knowing that this sermon was coming up, uh, needless to say, I was nervous. So I prayed fervently, uh, coming up to this, dove in, and was surprised to find some really cool stuff in this passage. God helped me see some things that I hadn't before, and I can't wait to share it with you guys. Remember that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So this has pushed me to even look at those passages, passages like this with more care. Uh, A lot of people struggle with genealogies and just those long lists of names. And uh, a missionary friend uh, was working out in this tribe and was trying to give the gospel uh, to these people and they were listening and, you know, talking with him. And, um, they're like, oh yeah, that's nice. Jesus, you know, this nice story about this guy that died on a cross. And, you know, they're like, that's, that's an interesting story, you know, and they kind of added it to their list of all these different stories that they had heard. But when they got to the genealogies, they realized that this wasn't a story, but this was real people. This was real. This was true. And they saw like, oh, this isn't just a story. But, but this is about things that actually took place, that actually happened. And their whole approach towards the gospel completely changed. Based off of genealogies. Things that, if we're being honest, a lot of us just kind of skim through most of the time. Like that's what brought people to Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God. Every bit of it. So we're in week eight of our uh, series on Jeremiah. Next Sunday will be our last week in the book, which maybe some of you are excited about. Uh, Where We're going to look at the final chapter and go back over what we've discussed, pointing back to these main themes. This morning we're going to be looking at these judgments to nine different people groups. But first of all, why are these here? Because the rest of the book of Jeremiah is about the Hebrews, Judah in particular. So why is Jeremiah prophesying to other people, to these other people groups? Well, first of all, every prophet except for one, Hosea, prophesied to other nations, there are chunks of prophecies like this section in Isaiah 13 to 23, Ezekiel 25 to 32, Amos 1, Zephaniah 2. But more importantly, Jeremiah was a prophet to the nations. And we read this when we started the book. Jeremiah 1.5, God tells him, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And in Jeremiah 1.10, he says, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. So, of course, Jeremiah would prophesy to other nations. This shows that God is the God of all nations. He is sovereign over the whole world. This morning, we're going to talk through some of the geography and history of these judgments. We're going to work through some common themes, look at some common themes through these judgments, and we're going to talk about what the readers took away and what we should learn from all of this. We just sang this song, um, just saying, Jesus, that none would see me, but see through me to you. Just this beautiful idea of, of who we are. Um, and and what, our, what our job should be as, as Christians is pointing others to Jesus, that, that we would be forgotten and that he would be remembered. Um, let me pray as we dive in. And that, that is my true prayer God, it's not about me, it's not about any of us, but it's about you. All of history, all of scripture, all of time is all about you. And you desire to give us the very best. And that's yourself. You have nothing better to offer us than all of who you are. So God, as we dive into your word, let us see you. God, let me get out of the way. so that your words would just ring true, that people uh, would get to see you today. God, that we would just dive into a, a chunk of Scripture that oftentimes is just difficult, but God, just see the beauty of who you are. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm... Very thankful that many of you have enjoyed the use of maps. Guess what? (laughs) I've got another map. Uh, this is, this map is also in your bulletin and it's fully filled out. Uh, so feel free to follow along as we go. I left the rest of the front, um, of your handout just there for notes as you want to kind of jot down different things. Um, as I mentioned, there are nine different uh, nations or people groups mentioned in these chapters. We're looking at chapters 46 all the way through 51. Uh, some of these uh, have more detail than others. We're going to look at each of these briefly. Judah's been the focus of the whole book. So it's up there on the map for reference. Also, though Babylon is mentioned last of these nine, I put it... Uh, on right away as the prophecy against every other nation is basically Babylon is coming to wipe you out. It's not always specifically said that the attacking nation is Babylon, but we can assume from context that it's Babylon. And and you probably notice that we're going to slowly work our way from west to east, uh, basically. And that's how these chapters are ordered. But again, I put Babylon on there because Babylon is the one that's going through and conquering these other nations. It's being used as God's instrument. Now, one final thing to be aware of is that in almost every prophecy, many different cities are mentioned. We've seen this before in the book of Jeremiah, as Jeremiah points out different landmarks to give readers a scope of what he's talking about. Remember, we talked about this before as he was talking about the restoration uh, of Jerusalem and pointing to different landmarks so people know. And I likened it to, you know, from Milpitas to Los Gatos, from Mountain View to Gilroy. He pointed out different things that his readers were able to grab on and go, I get it. And he's doing the same thing here as he's talking about different cities. He's talking about the scope and breadth of each of these different nations. So here he's pointing out Uh, Just in the same way that he pointed out the whole land of Israel would be restored, here he's pointing out that the whole land of these nations will be destroyed. All right, here we go. First, we have Egypt. Egypt spans uh, chapter 46. Uh, as as you know, Egypt is in northeast Africa. But in the first few verses of chapter 46, the Euphrates River is mentioned, which you can see is way further north. So, so what is going on here? Well, here's what's going on. I have another map. <laughs> Love those maps. So there's this battle that happens up at Carchemish. And it's happening during the reign of King Jehoiakim. So Jeremiah is going back and telling the story. He's not prophesying. He's talking about something that has already happened. So you can see here that Babylon comes up and Egypt comes up and they have this battle up at Carchemish and Babylon wins and Egypt retreats back down. And that purple area is where Babylon takes over, uh, where Nebuchadnezzar defeats the Pharaoh, King uh, Necho uh, at at Carchemish. So in this story, uh, which is the first few verses of chapter 46, Egypt comes up with this pride and arrogance They're marching up towards Carchemish like, we got this. They're coming in chariots. They're coming with horses, with their swords. It talks about it in Scripture. And they're coming with this pride, ready to crush them. But they lost. For God was avenging himself, which he says in Scripture, very possibly because Pharaoh Necho killed King Josiah, which we find out about earlier in Scripture. Uh, something else to notice uh, in this passage is that water is used as a metaphor for the army. Look at chapter 46, verses 7 and 8, and we'll also see some pride in here. It says, who is this rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. So you see that pride, but you also see this water language that's used here. Just so it's more of an FYI to n- n- understand what they're talking about. And then in the rest of chapter 46, uh, we have this prophecy towards Egypt. They're told that Nebuchadnezzar is coming in and he's going to strike Egypt. Egypt. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago as God told the remnant in chapter 43. Uh, this was actually just last week. That, you know, remember the, uh, the remnant wanted to go to Egypt to stay safe, to get away from Babylon. And Jeremiah prophesies as soon as they show up, hey, don't get comfortable. Babylon's going to come in and they're going to crush Egypt. And so now Jeremiah is prophesying directly to Egypt and saying, Yeah, remember what I told them? Like, this is actually going to happen. But there's something beautiful that happens in here. Look at verse 26 of chapter 46. He says, I will deliver them into the hands of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited, as in the days of old, declares the Lord. God promises that Egypt is going to be inhabited again. Just let that sit there for for a second. We're going to come back to that. Something else I want to point out is actually in the verse right before that. Then the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel said, Behold, I am bringing punishment upon Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh and Egypt and her gods and her kings upon Pharaoh and those who trust in him. Ammon of Thebes is a god that the Egyptians would worship. And those of you that know Egyptian history know also that Pharaoh was looked to be a god as well. And so here, God is calling out the gods of Egypt. And that's an important thing to notice. So that's Egypt. Moving on to Philistia. Philistia is chapter 47. Uh, We hear a lot about the Philistines through scripture. Uh, This was a main foe of David. Many of you know the story of David and Goliath. Uh, The Hebrews are fighting the Philistines then. Um, And when David becomes king, he actually uh, reduces uh, Philistia's power a lot. But uh, once the kingdom divided, uh, it had grown back up again. Uh, here in chapter 47, we see this water metaphor again, but this time it's against the Philistines, whereas it was used uh, in support of Egypt. Look at verse 2 of chapter 47. It says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, waters are rising out of the north and shall become an overflowing torrent. They shall overflow the land and all that fills it, the city and those that dwell in it. Men shall cry out, Every inhabitant of the land shall wail. And then as we continue to read, we see how bad this destruction is going to be on the Philistines. Look at verse 3. At the noise of the stamping of the hooves of his stallions, at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of their wheels, the fathers look not back to their children. So feeble are their hands. Fathers are so paralyzed with fear that they can't even turn to go back and get their kids. That's how great this destruction is that's coming. And again, um, just wanted to give you a little bit more insight into some of the lingo. Uh, in verse 5, it says that baldness has come upon uh, Gaza. It's not that people are just losing their hair. Uh, this is actually, uh, baldness is a way of talking about sorrow or grief. So when it says baldness has come upon Gaza, it's talking about sorrow and grief that's coming. And this concept shows up in the prophecies to a couple of other nations. Moving on to Moab. Moab covers chapter 48. The Moabites were descendants of Lot. And this is the longest of the prophecies made to other nations, except for Babylon. Now, Moab has a huge issue with pride. Huge issue with pride. I'm going to kind of just run down and uh, point out some verses. Verse 2, it says, the renown of Moab is no more. Verse 7 says, because you trusted in your works and your treasures you also shall be taken. You see pride there. We're trusting in our own works and in our treasures. Verse 10, it says, Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord with slackness, and cursed is he who keeps back his sword from bloodshed. So pushing them to be obedient. Verse 11, it says, Moab has been at ease from his youth and has settled on his dregs. This is a reference to the sediment of wine that settles at the bottom of a bottle uh, that's been sitting around for a long time. So again, talking about pride. Verse 14, it says, how do you say we are heroes and mighty men of war? Verse 17, how the mighty scepter is broken, the glorious staff. Verse 18, come down from your glory and sit on the parched ground. Verse 20, Moab is put to shame. And if those verses in and of themselves didn't, give you a hint of Moab's pride. Look at verse 29 of chapter 48. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his loftiness, his pride, his arrogance, and the haughtiness of his heart. Does Moab struggle with pride? You betcha. In verse 37, uh, it's shaved heads are mentioned again, just a reference to sorrow and grief. These are not happy prophecies at all. And also, uh, it mentions Chemosh, and Chemosh was Moab's central deity. Again, just wanted to point that out. We're gonna come back to that in a minute. But look at verse 47. God says, yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. I will restore the fortunes of Moab. God promises restoration. Moving on to Ammon. We're going to start moving through a little bit quicker. Chapter 49 covers uh, five different people groups. Ammon is the first uh, the Ammonites were descendants of Lot. And again, they struggled with pride. Look at verse 4. Why do you boast of your valleys, O faithless daughter, who trusted in her treasures, saying, who will come against me? See, Ammon thought that they were uninvadable. They had mountains on three sides as a natural protection, kind of looking at where they are. They had the Dead Sea on one side and mountains kind of all around the rest of them. And so they thought, No one's able to touch us at all. And so they had this pride. Milcom is mentioned in here, and Milcom is their God. So again, their God is called out. But then look at verse 6. But afterward, I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. Again, God promises restoration. Moving on to Edom. Edom are descendants of Esau. So this one in particular uh, is very severe in its language, in its prophetic language. And the severity of the prophecies here reflects the volatility of the relationship between Jacob and Esau. If you remember your Israel history, you know that those two were brothers and fought against each other and God chose Jacob and didn't choose Esau. And so there was volatility between them, and it passed down and down and down and down. Edom also struggles with pride. Look at chapter 49, verse 16. The horror you inspire has deceived you, and the pride of your heart. You who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill. Though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. Edom also had this idea, this thought that they could never be invaded or captured. Um, Now we saw a promise of restoration to the last three. There is no promise of restoration to Edom. Yet there's still compassion for orphans and widows. Verse 11 says, leave your fatherless children. I will keep them alive and let your widows trust in me. Damascus is next. It covers chapter 49, verses 23 through 27. Damascus is the farthest north. And so here we start to see the wide range of Babylon's con- conquest. So we started west and you know, have been moving our way east, and now we go all the way up to Damascus in the north. Moving on to Kadar and Hazor. This covers chapter 49, uh, verses 28 to 33. Kedar and Hazor were nomadic tribes, so kind of moving around, didn't really have like a cities, home bases, but were rather moving around. Here in the prophecy to Kedar and Hazor, uh, Babylon is very clearly being used as God's instrument. Both in verses 28 and 31, we see God saying, rise up, advance. And he's talking to Babylon and saying, go and, and destroy. We see self-confidence in them in verse 31. Rise up, advance against a nation at ease that dwells securely, declares the Lord, that has no gates or bars, that dwells alone. They're relaxed. They felt like, we're we're good. We're fine. Kedar and Hazor are also the furthest south. So again, we're starting to see the scope of Babylon's conquest. And then finally, we have Elam. And we see how far east Elam is. This is the rest of chapter 49. Uh, They also struggled with pride. Verse 35 says, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might. Uh, in Elam, they were expert marksmen. Isaiah 22, 6 says, and Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen. Elam was the farthest east, as you can see. And look at verse 39. But in the latter days, I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. So again, God promises restoration. So you see the broad extent of the nations that Babylon went to destroy being God's instrument. Now we get to Babylon itself. This is the culmination of everything else where this whole book has been building in some regard. Judah has been taken into exile. Remember, they're reading this while in Babylon. The other nations have been destroyed. And Babylon has taken over most of the whole world. Jeremiah's writing even points to this culmination. It's really, really cool what happens in this passage. Parts of chapters 50 and 51 are repetitions of other judgments, pointing to the totality and finality of the judgment coming on Babylon. In chapter 50, verse 30, it's a repeat of 49, verse 26, almost word for word, but just changing out the names. It's a repeat of the judgment towards Damascus. It says that men and soldiers are going to be destroyed. In verses 41 to 43 of chapter 50, this is a repeat of chapter 6, verses 22 to 24, talking about people coming with no mercy. Here, this judgment was originally made towards Judah, and now it's being said towards Babylon as well. In chapter 50, verses 44 to 46, so right after that, this is a repeat of chapter chapter 49, verses 19 to 21, a judgment towards Edom, where God says, who is like me? God is reminding them of their power. Again, Like re- Jeremiah is repeating these things to, to say... What was said before now is coming and culminating and happening to Babylon itself. And let's look at chapter 51, verses 15 to 19. Jeremiah 51, verses 15 to 19. I hope this sounds familiar to you. This is a repeat of chapter 10, verses 12 to 16. It is he who made the earth by his power... You could actually be looking at chapter 10, verses 12 to 16, and it reads exactly the same. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the word, world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Not only did Jeremiah prophesy these words to Judah, but he also prophesied them to Babylon. And he's coming again and bringing everything full circle. Now we find out also in this passage that the conquering army is the Medes, for you history buffs out there. Um, We also see throughout uh, these chapters to Babylon that uh, God is calling out Babylon's false gods. Bel and Merodach are two names for the same God, which is Babylon's great deity. In chapter 50, verse 2, it says her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. In uh, 51, verses 17 and 18, we just read it. Images are false, worthless, a work of delusion. 51, verse 44. It says, let not your heart faint and be not fearful at the report heard in the land. When a report comes in one year and afterwards a report in another year. And violence is the land and ruler against ruler. Nope, I'm sorry. I read 46. I was like, why does not that making sense? Now I know why. 44 says, and I will punish Bel in Babylon. So again, this is reference to that God. And take out of his mouth what he has swallowed. The nation shall no longer flow to him. The wall of Babylon has fallen. So again, their God is being pointed out and called out. 51 verse 52 says, I will execute judgment on her images. Babylon also struggled with pride. In verse two, it talks about idols that they were proud of that are put to shame. In chapter 50, verses 31 and 32, it says, Behold, I am against you, O proud one, declares the Lord of hosts. For your day has come, the time when I will punish you. The proud one shall stumble and fall with none to raise him up, and I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all that is around him. And then in chapter 50, verse 36, it talks about humbling the proud diviners and warriors. Now we saw a few of these other nations were promised to be rebuilt. Babylon will not be rebuilt. Will not. 51, verse 26, it says, No stone shall be taken from you for a corner and no stone for a foundation, but you shall be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. And then in 51, verses 60 to 64, Jeremiah wrote in a book all the disaster that should come upon Babylon, all those words that are written concerning Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, Sariah is most likely Baruch's brother, by the way, so really cool, that connection there. Jeremiah said to Sariah, When you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates. And say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her and they shall become exhausted. And then it says, thus far are the words of Jeremiah. All right, we're done with our history lesson. Let's take a look at some common themes. Common themes, first of all, This is God's work. In chapter 46, verse 28, it says, I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you. This is God speaking. I want to show you just a little bit of how obvious this is. Just as we saw two weeks ago that restoration is God's work, last week, obedience is God's work, so also the destruction of these nations is God's work. The phrase, I will, is used 51 times in these chapters alone, both in redemption towards Israel and judgment toward the nations. That phrase, I will, is used 294 times in the book of jeremiah egypt i will deliver them into the hands of those who seek their life philistia for the lord is destroying the philistines moab i will bring an end in moab i will bring terror upon you ammon edom i will make you small among the nations damascus i will kindle a fire in the wall of damascus kadar and hazor I will bring their calamity from every side of them. Elam, I will break the bow of Elam. By the way, in uh, the prophecy to Elam, there are more I wills than any other nation besides Babylon. God is clearly making a point. I will, I will, I will. Babylon, I will punish you. I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter. So this judgment is clearly... God's work. Yes, he's using Babylon as his instrument, but it is God's work. The next common theme is how God condemns the gods of these nations. We saw this in the prophecy to Egypt, to Moab, to Ammon, and to Babylon. In calling out their gods, God is showing the futility of worshiping them, their inability to save, and he is showing Judah that he alone should be worshipped. Remember that idolatry was an issue for Judah. So God is making a point that these gods shouldn't be worshipped. So what's one thing Judah should clearly walk away with as they're reading this? Stop worshiping idols. What's one thing we should walk away with as we're reading this? Stop worshiping idols. Another common theme is God's loving mercy. God extends mercy to nations promising their return. Egypt, Moab, Ammon, and Elam. In doing so, God shows his love for all people. In Ezekiel 18, it says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Second Peter 3, 8 and 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, this is not the most straightforward and easy topic to handle, because not all are saved. Deuteronomy 26 or 28 says, "As and as the Lord took delight in you doing good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. Now there's a deeper wrestle that you'll be able to uh, get into with your community groups. But even without having this discussion, you can clearly see from these passages that God's love is not limited to just a few. He truly loves and extends mercy even to those that are farthest from him. Even to Edom, who is not promised restoration, God still has compassion on their orphans and widows. He also, of course, offers hope to Israel. And this is why they're in exile, so that they will be able to be disciplined and then restored. Flip over to 46. Verses 27 and 28. I want you to catch this. It says, But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel. This, by the way, is a repeat of chapter 30, verses 10 and 11. So again, Jeremiah continues to bring back these things that he said before and say them again. And I love that. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. Then flip over to chapter 50, verses 4 and 5. I want you again to see this hope that he's giving to Israel, his loving mercy. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned toward it, saying, come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. And in 50 verses 18 and 19, it says, I will restore Israel to his pasture and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead In those days. And at that time declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel and there shall be none and sin in Judah, and none shall be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. Now, this is a different remnant than the remnant that was destroyed in Egypt. Remember, that already took place and happened. And it talks about how Israel will be restored to their land. And it mentions places in Israel. And God will forgive all their sin. And then in verses 33 and 34, it also talks about God being their redeemer. But what I love in this is just seeing God extending mercy even to these nations that he's judging. It's beautiful. One more common theme, and that's pride. Seven of the nine nations were condemned for their pride. Egypt, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Kedar and Hazor, Elam, and Babylon. So maybe... Just maybe God is trying to communicate something to Judah. Let's put this all together. First, he lets them know that all of this is his work. There will be no congratulations for Judah. No patting them on the back. There is no way they should be proud of the good they've accomplished. They're in exile. They've been defeated. God has shown them That the good that is ahead will be his doing and not theirs. God condemns other gods. Gods that they made. Gods that they trusted in. He's showing them that as they're trying to take control of religion, of faith, it fails. God extends loving mercy to others. The nation of Judah was an evil Even able to extend loving mercy to their own, to Jeremiah. Far be it from them to extend loving mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it. And then God shows them the folly and futility of pride. It wasn't able to save a single nation. Regardless of how strong they felt or seemed, they all fell. We all know Proverbs 16:18 pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The problem was that they were looking at who um they were looking at who they were compared to others, who they were compared to others. Instead of looking at who they were compared to God. Let me say that again cuz that came out a little rough. The problem was that they were looking at who they were compared to others instead of looking at who they were compared to God. The biggest thing that Judah should have taken away from their exile was the importance of being humble. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs twenty two four: the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Proverbs 29.23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Jeremiah has brought this up earlier to Judah. They didn't listen when he spoke it, but now they're listening as they're reading it. Back in Jeremiah 13, God has Jeremiah buy a new loincloth and then utterly ruin it. And so Jeremiah does. And listen to chapter 13, verses 8 to 11. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, even so I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen." And later in verse 15, it says, hear and give ear, be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. And then in uh, chapter 44, 44, verse 10, it says, they have not humbled themselves even to this day, nor have they feared, nor walked in my law and my statutes that I set before you and for their, before your fathers. Judah needed to learn to humble themselves. But not only did they need to learn to humble themselves, but so do we. Because the root of every sin is pride. Sin began with pride. Satan wanted to be higher than God. Proud of himself. He was cast out of heaven. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God, knowing good from evil. Sin, at its core, is rejecting God's way of doing things and trying to be in charge yourself, which is pride. Nope, I don't need your help, God. I've got this. Yeah, sure, I follow some of God's commands, but there are ones that I don't think are right or make sense, so I don't follow those. Now, you might not say either of these things out loud or think those that directly, but maybe your actions reflect that. The solution is to focus on God. The more you understand who he is, the more you understand your place, the more humble you will be. Again, through showing Judah that this is God's work, through condemning those other gods, through showing them his loving mercy toward all, and through condemning pride, God is showing them more Of himself. He is showing them why they should be humble before him. There are two great examples of this. Uh, First of all, is Job. Job was proud of his righteousness, of how good he was. And he thought he knew how God worked. God was good. So, or uh, Job was good, so God blessed him. I've got all this stuff, clearly must be doing right. But then that all blew up in his face and he lost everything. Though he continued to worship, he was still confused. And after a lot of discussion with friends, he got to hear from God himself who reminded Job of who he was and who God is. And then we get to Job 42, which says, Then, God answer, or, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me. That's He's quoting God. Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. As Job understood God at a deeper level, he was quicker to humble himself. Now, let me toss out a quick caveat before I get to the second great example. This does not mean that we need to think that we are worthless. God doesn't think of us that way. Why should we? Rick Warren in The Purpose Driven Life says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. The whole idea of humility, the whole idea of this is to stop comparing ourselves with others, which can easily cause pride, but rather compare ourselves with God, which will bring us towards humility and make us rely more on him. Paul understood this concept and he brings it up in Philippians 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blame, blameless. Paul had some amazing credentials on the outside. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Christ. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may be able to attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had every right to brag, to be proud of who he was, of his accomplishments. But the more he knew of Jesus, the more he realized that his accomplishments were rubbish in light of knowing Jesus. The more we get to know God, the more we realize who we are without him and who he has made us to be. The nation of Judah was nothing without God. God sent them into exile. Then he allowed them to see the great nations around them crumble at the hand of the Almighty so that they could understand their Lord at a deeper level. He then showed them who they would become by his doing. Again, Jeremiah forty six twenty seven to 28 But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed. O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. God allows them to see the great nations around them crumble at the hand of the Almighty so they could understand their Lord at a deeper level. James 4.10 humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. God, help us stop comparing ourselves with others. It's so easy to get wrapped up into that. Especially as we evaluate how we're doing in our walk with you. I'm not, I'm doing pretty good. I read the Bible more than that guy does. I pray more than she does. I show up at church more often than he does. Who cares? God, that's not where you want our focus. You want our focus to be on you and you alone. It's you that does this amazing work. It's you that draws us to yourself. It's you that forgives. It's you that restores. It's by your will that we're able to obey. God, you're the one that has given all of this to us. So far be it from us to be proud. We have nothing in and of ourselves to be proud of except for you and you alone. God, please help us continue to be humble laying down ourselves so that there's more room for you. Because God, that's what we want. We want more of you. We want all of you. In Jesus' name.